A young woman stands, one hand on the top of a chair, the other holding a bouquet of leaves. She stares directly into the lens of the camera. It's not clear what she's thinking. She's wearing a long, dark dress, long sleeves, and a white collar that covers her neck. It's old-fashioned. It's colonial. A simple crucifix hangs from her neck. She's an indigenous Australian, an Aboriginal, and behind her is a landscape that's lush, although, wait, it's actually a tapestry of a landscape. And the picture is blue, the blue you might know if you've ever seen crockery with the willow pattern, Spode China. This is a piece of art, and it's called A Gaze Still Dark, brackets, A Black Portrait of Intimacy, and this is Danny Meller's grandmother. Welcome to Two Pages with MBS, the podcast where brilliant people read the best two pages from a favorite book, a book that has moved them, a book that has shaped them. Now, Danny Meller, the grandson of the woman in this picture, is also the creator of this image. And by the way, if you do want to see this image, so not just relying on my <laughs> attempt at a description, uh, do check out the YouTube uh, video of this conversation because we'll actually get to show you the pieces of art that we talk about in it. So Danny's a brilliant Australian artist, and his work stirs questions and really provocations about this intersection between colonial and contemporary and historic cultures. His work can be found all over the world, in museums such as the National Gallery of Canada, so that's cool as a Canadian and Australian, the British Museum, the National Museum of Scotland, and also in Canberra's own National Gallery of Australia, which is where I saw a gaze still dark and thought, man, I need to speak to this person. This work is extraordinary. Now, the cultural intersections in Danny's art is also to be found in his story. His maternal side of the family is Aboriginal Scottish. And on his father's side, well, they were from California originally, and they found a home in Australia as sugarcane farmers, but not just sugarcane farmers. My great-grandfather was the Arkansas kid. Um, that was his stage name in California, wrote in Bill Cody's show. and But in Australia, was very well known for um, being a, a great sort of horse rider. So there's this really kind of rich, I guess, family heritage, but also cultural and historical heritage that Australia has. Danny was born in Queensland in Australia, but he wasn't given the chance to put down roots there. Growing up there, I spent some time in, in that northern Queensland, but then we moved around quite a lot. So growing up, we lived in different parts of Australia. We lived overseas as well, um, particularly Scotland. And over time, I, you know, I guess part of that growing up and experiencing life led me to becoming, I guess, very interested in art and art practice. And I wasn't sure if that was actually a possibility to, you know, to forge a career as an artist. And in fact, I was told on many occasions that, well, no, it's not. In fact, he didn't become an artist immediately. And instead, he went into academia. And I think you'll, you'll actually hear some of this, his joy of the lucidity of discussing ideas and subtleties in our conversation. But after 18 years, the call to commit full time to his art became, it became demanding. It became insistent. It just became too busy in the sense that there were opportunities that were opening up some great sort of projects I wanted to work on. And so I took actually a year without pay to begin with after dropping back to part-time for a few years. I then sort of stepped back without pay. And after six to nine months of being away, I realised actually things are getting even busier. So I need to make a call. And I did. After I first saw Danny's art in the National Gallery here in Canberra, honestly, I geeked out on it a bit. I mean, he's best known for this style of work that a gaze still dark embodies. This old photography made large and reimagined and recolored and reframed in a way that makes the relationship between country and colony more apparent and more contemporary and more pressing. But he's actually worked at many different scales and formats, small and intimate and also enormous, both two-dimensional and three-dimensional sculptural, things that stand alone and other pieces of art that work in relationship to where they're installed. So I was really curious as somebody who tries to be a creator and a maker himself, how he decides 
really what game to play and what shape his ideas should have. I actually began working at art school mostly with imagery. So much of that background, if you like, very, very early career development work was um, imagery based. Mm-hmm. So printmaking, a lot of drawing, work on paper, some painting. But uh, you're right, I then moved into um, three-dimensional or sculptural forms. And in a way, that was running parallel to the image making that I was doing. So at different points in my career, there have been things which became perhaps, you know, more publicly known and there would be almost, almost like a sine wave where things sort of almost poke their head above the surface and then there's some sort of traction around that. But then other things that I'm working on as well sort of come up into that public gaze and and there's a different sort of conversation around the work. Yeah. So the, the narrative back of that and what's at the core in terms of, I guess you could call conceptual threads and framework, is, as you've said in the very beginning, there's a, a real focus, if you like, on those histories in Australia around colonial um, settler and it, let's be very um, upfront about that colonial invasion of Australia yeah. and, in a sense, how that relates to Indigenous or, or First Nations experience and what 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 happened to the landscape and to people. And yeah. so, in some sense, it's a very human story, but as an artist, I find that my touchstone, if you like, is landscape yes. and how to explore all those really complex, incredible layers of human experience, human story, and all the different cultural spaces that open up with different awareness around, you know, human presence and connection and relationship to space. Well, that, that leads me to ask this question. And I'm, I'm going to stumble a bit about it because I haven't quite figured it out in my own head, but I'm, I guess I'm curious to know, or if you even think about who your audience is. Like, do you make art for your or your own sense of exploring and articulating some of these themes? Or do you have an audience in mind? Because I, I've seen your work in, in institutions. And institutions are, <laughs> are often holders of a, a colonial heritage and a, and a reinforcement of the status quo, as they can be. So I'm just, I, I, I guess I'm struggling to know how to articulate this, but who do you make art for? How do you, what? It, how does your relationship with and your success in institutions play with that? Because in some ways, it feels like a key message that I see in your work is this disruption of this comfort of a colonial history. Sure, um, and that's a really interesting way to open up another insight into what, what, and how and why artists do things in in some ways for an art practice if you like to have any sense of longevity it sounds selfish but the artist almost needs to create work for themselves so they kind of need to be internally curious about something or um, a series of events or history or even themselves i mean there are artists who focus particularly on the nature of identity and all of these sort of strands of research, if you like, even if they're deeply personal, are valid in terms of art making. And so in some ways, my target audience is not necessarily the first thing I think about, right. even though I'm very aware that the work when it leaves the studio will be um, offered to an audience and people will see it. And so you're right, yes, there are institutional audiences or, or museum audiences, and those sort of, if you like, conflicted histories and the presence of a different different kinds of work, which is both colonial and contemporary and this incredible mix, I think part of the beauty of that, it's almost a paradox, but part of the beauty is that, of that is that, in fact, you can go to a gallery, an institution, and experience that sense of history and understand some of the and understand some of the ways that things have been weighted or seen in the past, but also how conversations change over time. Right. And this has been perhaps slow, but really important in the sense that First Nations Indigenous art has entered into a, a very particular kind of conversation with institutional environments. Right. And 
allows a, a different kind of reading and perception around the absolute validity of Indigenous knowledge, Indigenous um, systems of, of cultural interaction with space and country, and also the fact that First Nations art or Aboriginal art has a, a really valid part to play in contemporaneous visual language. So up until the 70s, or perhaps even 80s, I think, there was a, a real perception that, in fact, all Aboriginal art was ethnographic. Right. And so any, it was almost like a, a, a cultural glass ceiling. It was shown in museums and it was spoken about in, in terms that weren't, let's say, related to a discourse around contemporary visual culture or contemporary right. visual art. And so when that began to sort of break down a little, there were some really interesting movements, and this happened in quite a lot of um, different countries, you know, where there are First Nations populations, uh, where, you know, less classical forms of work that began to be made by urban Indigenous artists found their way into galleries and began to gather traction. And I think this is where there's a real breakdown in terms of perception around what Aboriginal artists were actually able to create work about and use and with. So the mediums changed. So there was a, a real sort of amazing uh, outpouring of photography, of painting, of drawing, of performance, of moving image works, which engaged critically with all of those contemporary mediums, but also um, dovetailed and began to move very sort of steadily and I would say determinedly at, into the centre of theoretical and philosophical discussions around contemporary art. Right. It feels like this might be a nice segue to, to ask you what you've chosen to read for us. Certainly. And what I've chosen to read from today is uh, Susan Sontag's book, and I'll hold that up, on photography. Oh, beautiful. And it's been a really interesting touchstone for me because I haven't always shown photographs. I've right. always taken photographs in the field as a kind of a, a notebook or a sketchbook. Um, and with digital, it's it's just so easy now to capture, bring back, and it's almost like a preserved memory that you refer back to. Right, right. And so I, like I, I do feel as an artist who's come to photography, it's opened up a, a really amazing sort of world of understanding theoretical perspectives around imagery. And I, interestingly enough, I, I wrote my PhD or one of the areas of focus in my research for the PhD was photography, late colonial photography. Right. And so I encountered a really different language and, and ways of looking at images. And I found Susan Sontag's work has been really quite a, a little bit of an anchoring point really for me. And in some ways, as I, as I explained to you, it's quite analog, like at the first papers or the draft of this was 1971, which I, right. I've always found sort of, you know, quite prescient because I was, that's the year I was born. And I, I was thinking, well, this is kind of interesting. I'm reading a text from that's that great. year I was born. And, and I, you know, growing up in the seventies was such a great time. It was very analog. Yeah. And so when I read um, Sontag's um, words, it's almost like taking me back to those formative years of my life mm -hmm. and kind of understanding how someone was trying to contextualize and, and talk about it. And so what I might do is, is just jump straight in yeah, please. And, and read. And so I'll begin now. And um, this particular um, book is, I think it's one of the, the third reprints, so I'm reading from page 147. Less and less does the work of art depend on being a unique object, an original made by an individual artist. Much of painting today aspires to the qualities of reproducible objects. Finally, photographs have become so much the leading visual experience that we now have works of art which are produced in order to be photographed. In much of conceptual art, in Christo's packaging of the landscape, in the earthworks of Walter Di Maria and Robert Smithson, at Segway he did the spiral jetty in Utah, the artist's work is known principally by the photographic report of it in galleries and museums. Sometimes the size is such that it can only be known in a photograph or from an aeroplane. The photograph is not even ostensibly meant to lead us back to an original experience. It was on the basis of this presumed truce between photography and painting that photography was, grudgingly at first, then enthusiastically, acknowledged as a fine art. But the very question of whether photography is or is not an art 
is essentially a misleading one. Although photography generates work that can be called art, it requires subjectivity, it can lie, it can give aesthetic pleasure, photography is not, to begin with, an art form. Like language, it is a medium in which works of art, among other things, are made. Out of language, one can make scientific discourse, bureaucratic memoranda, love letters, grocery lists, and Balzac's Paris. Out of photography, one can make passport pictures, weather photographs, pornographic pictures, x-rays, wedding pictures, and Aceh's Paris. Photography is not an art like, say, painting and poetry. Although the activities of some photographers conform to the traditional notion of a finer art, the activity of exceptionally talented individuals producing discrete objects that have value in themselves, from the beginning photography has also lent itself to that notion of art which says that art is obsolete. The power of photography and its centrality in present aesthetic concerns is that it confirms both ideas of art, but the way in which photography renders art is obsolete is, in the long run, stronger. Painting and photography are not two potentially competitive systems for producing and reproducing images, which simply had to arrive at a proper division of territory to be reconciled. Photography is an enterprise of another order. Photography, though not an art form in itself, has the peculiar capacity to turn all of its subjects into works of art. The traditional fine arts are elitist. Their characteristic form is a single work, produced by an individual. They imply a hierarchy of subject matter in which some subjects are considered important, profound, noble, and others unimportant, trivial, base. The media are democratic. They weaken the role of the specialized producer or auteur by using procedures based on chance or mechanical techniques which anyone can learn and by being corporate or collaborative efforts. They regard the whole world as material. The traditional fine arts rely on the distinction between authentic and fake, between original and copy, between good taste and bad taste. The media blur if they do not abolish outright these distinctions. The fine arts assume that certain experiences or subjects have a meaning. The media are essentially contentless. This is the truth behind Marshall McLuhan's celebrated remark about the message being the medium itself. Their characteristic tone is ironic, or deadpan, or parodistic. It is inevitable that more and more art will be designed to end as photographs. A modernist would have to rewrite Pater's dictum that all art aspires to the condition of music. Now all art aspires to the condition of photography. That's wonderful. There are some fairly, I always found there was, there was some profound passages in, in Sontag's writing. And what was sort of extraordinary, and what actually led that book to be criticised quite heavily, was the fact that it wasn't footnoted. Uh-huh. So there was no bibliography. I, and the bibliography that, or quote-unquote bibliography, was a, a, a sequence, several pages of quotes from people she considered important and, and sort of delivered snippets, if you like, of wisdom around mm-hmm. looking, seeing and photographing. Mm. Mm-hmm. That's so interesting. Because there's something uh, I'm grasping here, Danny, but there's something about insisting on a bibliography is also like insisting on a truthfulness that is part of the very conversation she's having around the slipperiness and the ubiquity of what photography is. Um, That's right, yeah. And bibliographies tend, academically anyway, tend to imply that an, an endorsement in some ways in right. the sense that it shows you've done research or... Right. Um, that sort of thing and so there's a valid there's a validity in that structure but i quite as you were saying i I quite like the way sontag in a sense muses her way through some Mm. really deep thinking and and consideration around images and her insights as someone who's very observant about the world around her danny how um how does what sontag is writing about and speaking to about the the um the 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 way all art aspires to be photography and i found another one of her quotes which was to photograph is to appropriate the thing photographed which i thought was similarly powerful um how does that mediate your relationship with using photography at the heart of your work yeah let me just um touch on that first question you had about 
um, uh, everything becoming or art becoming everything becoming a photograph. Yeah. To be honest, still working my way through that one. Um, <laughs> right, <laughs> you know, questions questions in in an artist's life, I promise you, are unresolved and, and uh, works in progress. Um, and there was a that sort of great quote that that you had, and also the question. Well, what I found with with photography, in the sense that yes, it is a capture. Sontag mm. also makes a really quite close analogy with um, hunting and safari hunting, right? And how guns and weapons were sort of swapped out for highly technical cameras. Yeah. So you would still be hunting and you know, the vernacular language of photography is the same as hunting where you're shooting yes. and, you know, taking a picture and capturing something. And so there's this whole sort of dynamic thing of searching and looking and finding and discovering. And, you know, some of those early photographers um, would kind of, use that same analogy when sort of, if you like, walk, like walking in the streets of, of Paris, you know, in the, in those early days capturing and, and, and yeah. hunting. And there's these sorts of wonderful analogies that come up in, in, in terms of the way we can talk about it now, you know, particularly with that flood of Instagram images, with flood of digital images where there's just saturation. Even Sontag was making the, the point in the early seventies about there being a, a flood and a saturation yeah. of imagery. We had no idea what 50 years later looks like where no. our whole life is like, here's my, here's my Instagram feed and this is my life. It's incredible, isn't it? And that, so that was quite sort of, it was very soothsayerish almost to yeah. be writing that at the time when there was an explosion of, if you like, analog photography. Yeah. Um, but yeah, at, and you and I would be familiar with that where you either sent off, in the early days, rolls of film, or you went to the one-hour um, photo kiosk and you'd, you'd come back. Usually it wasn't one hour, you'd come back in 90 minutes sort of thing. Yeah. But, you know, it was always, yeah, yeah come back then. Um, <laughs> but so, yeah, but there's this whole sort of transformation and, and to be part of that, to be growing up in the 70s as in a very analogue sort of way and tend to have gone through those, you know, four decades, five decades of transformation, it's been absolutely remarkable. Yeah. Um, so in terms of my work, yeah. I have always been really fascinated with photography and for its power. And I think that relates to the image. I've always seen older photographs that relied on capturing light very directly with chemicals and those sorts of things to be almost time-travelling objects. Right. And I love thinking, opposing the, the thinking around light being captured by a chemical on paper and then traveling through time. So you're looking at, you can't, I mean, it's very poetic analogy and probably breaks down somewhere, but you're looking at light that has been captured and comes to you from the past. Right. And so for me, the archive has always held a, a kind of a, a specialness. Mm. And in some ways that relates to my own experience as a child growing up seeing our archival pictures of our family. And we, have pictures of my Aboriginal grandmas that go back to 1908. So my great, great grandmother was, I guess you would say an avid cut to visitor. So she would have portraits done or in the studio. And, and so we have this as a, as a kind of an image memory, but it was made real by the fact that, you know, my great grandmother was alive into my teenage years. So there was a, a living connection, a, a connection through these beautiful photographs. So I think, if my um, great great grandmother, who sort of got these portraits done, had been alive today, she would be sort of an Instagram star. She was very much, <laughs> very much into <laughs> taking a selfie star or something. I mean, she was so, she was quite, you know a beautiful woman, and and yeah. so the portraits that we have are, are really wonderfully sort of yeah. evocative, and and to look back and to think about their lives is really poignant. So, I think in some ways the power around the imagery is preserved because. There aren't that many. Yeah. I mean, there's quite a lot considering that they came from that time or quite a number rather. Um, but in this, in the sense that um, it's not a flood and so there's no. impact and power. And I think that's the same for a, a lot of family photographs that come from that particular era. There's a real right. sense of looking back and there's a, a certain emotional tug. There's like a, a poignancy 
about the act of looking. And Sontag writes about that, actually. The photograph, she points out very importantly, is a way of almost stopping the march of mortality or the march of life. It freezes um, life and, and stops, um, yeah. if you like, that sense of death or dying. So the photograph is very emblematic in that sense. So looking back, um, we kind of see life in a way sustained through an image. That's a very strange sort of experience because we are spectating. Right. And we are sort of almost, in a way, looking at someone, particularly with older photographs, who has passed away. And so I approach those sorts of images with absolute reverence because um, they're people who live, they're people who experience things. We share, you know, in some ways, the emotion and, and the things that they went through, at, you know, in very different forms. Um, and, you know, in the case of uh, First Nations women, Aboriginal women, you know, less brutally so because, I mean, that time of transformation would have been, I, I, I find it difficult to even think about how much turmoil and how people were actually kept things together as they did because, you know, effectively, literally, their whole life was changed and, and land and country was taken away. Yeah. And so that, that sense of tens of thousands of years of connection within two or three generations is disrupted often violently. Yes. And so the photographs themselves tell a very poignant, very powerful mm. sort of story. Yeah. What I love about talking with you is your art is infused with, with, with scholarship, with ideas. And there's this kind of uh, dance you have around appropriation, you know, and it's like how, uh, old photographies, photos like the photo of your grandmother is an appropriation in some ways and how you've reappropriated that. And you're known for how you used a blue and white color from Spode tableware and reappropriating mm -hmm. that as a, a, a way of showing how the colonial gaze is used to manage the, the, the weirdness of the Orient. Um, and I, I, I kind of want to geek out with you around that and learn from you around that. But actually, I want to ask a, a more foundational question, which is when I encounter your work, I have this, and this is part of why I admire it so much, is there's this mixture of, of thought and play and emotion. And I experience you as a very thoughtful and idea-led man, I'm curious to know how you work to bring in the play and the emotion in your work as well. Sure. And, and that, is, that is a fundamental question, actually. And yes, it's true that while my work has a very important relationship with material, mm. it's as you say, the, the thinking, but also the imagining and also how to approach historical issues that are a very a, a knotty, K-N-O-T-T-Y, and yeah. ongoing and still very live in the sense that colonialism, colonial settlement and colonial invasion is not that far back in our past. Right. And so in some ways, there's there's all these different ways of thinking about landscape and perhaps to go back to that touchstone of landscape where much of that thinking arises from um, the experience of people within that space, whether it's a, a historical space or a cultural space. And so in, in some ways, and to revisit an even earlier question around how you know, how, which materials or mediums to use, in some ways the idea determines that. So it may be that, you know, something translates best as a three-dimensional work. Something actually needs to be put down as a series of images. Mm. Um, in other ways, perhaps there's a combination of the two with installation work particularly. And so in some ways, what I'm trying to do actually is, is reflect upon all those complex layers initially in, I guess, in my, my own heritage, my own family ancestry. But then, in a sense, to look more broadly in a fairly transpersonal sort of way at 
those complex layers being reflected in the history of the spaces around me. So in some sense, there's an internet connection with that history of Australia, but it's, it's if you like, it's kind of transportable. So you can look then begin to think about that model or that framework of understanding and, and looking at different knowledge systems and how that actually has a conversation and dialogue much more broadly with those, those things in the world. So by focusing on, let's say, the local, you actually open up to the macro, which is the, the much larger. And, uh, and I guess in that sense, that's part of the power of sort of drilling down and, and focusing on one or two really important things that, you know, you find personally interesting, interesting as an artist because you kind of need something to, you need fuel. So you need curiosity, you need motivation and those sorts of things to continue that over time. Mm. And in that sense, it it opens up broader conversations. I've been continually amazed how things move beautifully in cycles, where there's a (laughs) cycle of inwardness and introspection, which turns into, a different kind of cycle of, of sharing and much more sort of public facing, if you like, interaction with the world around you. And these things happen over time. And it's quite fascinating to watch that, not just in my career, but in the careers of, of colleagues and artists around me. And so you begin to see that mirrored actually in everyone's life. That's that's sort of the way it works. And and so, you know, thinking about, about my work and, you know, where it's been and how it, how it has sort of progressed. It's been very interesting. You brought up blue, the blue palette earlier. Yeah. And that was such an important part of my early career work to think about what was important historically here, what was the impacts yeah. on the ecology and people. Um, but how, how then could I relate this in some way to, you know, a global sort of question, perhaps dialogue or historical sort of thing that unfolded over time. And I, at the time, as I said, I was very interested in printmaking. And so when um, I was introduced to blue and white, I suppose that the transfer wear on, on fine bone China um, through my wife, who is from Yorkshire and is very familiar with those sorts of things. And so I, it was like, Oh, wow. So actually the, the designs on blue and white are printed or transferred from a hand engraved copper plate. Uh-huh. And because I was involved, as I said, with printmaking at the time as sort of the thing that I was looking at and focusing on, I was really quite excited about the possibilities yeah. of exploring that through images, but also relating it very strongly to those ideas of um, that blue and white being perhaps one of the first sort of international languages yeah. that people engaged and understood in some sort of way. So, um, my intent with those earlier works by referencing that engraving from the dinnerware and the fine bone china was to talk about this idea the play on transferware which was the transfer of ideas the transfer of culture and very interestingly i found out a few years after i'd begun working with those sort of those images that in fact in in the 1770s that was when spode josiah spode perfected and began to work in a very dedicated way with transferware was the same time that Australia was being colonized. So there was this amazing kind of serendipity and dovetail with um, these conceptual frameworks I was working with, but also the very real kind of things that Josiah Spode was sort of battling with materials and trying to get things Mm. to production. And so there's this, and I, I would actually visit the Spode factory when I was in England. I visited the engravers quite a few times and um, kind of, I did a swap with the head engraver because I wanted some copper plate script engraved onto copper plates that I was printing from. And so I gave him one of my prints and it was, it was a really wonderful sort of connection. And, you know, this is, we bought a lot of Spode over the years as a way of supporting right. those engravers because right. it was just so important. <laughs> uh, sadly, you know, Spode, um, Spode went bust some years ago. Yeah, um, because we were was, reading about that. Yeah. Yeah. The, the market just wasn't there. And, and sadly the, the factory, um, did end up closing um, with some of their plates preserved in a Spode museum. There was, I think, roughly when I was there, the, the engraver, head engraver, Trevor, his name was, he took me down to this basement, which was a storage area for 200 years worth of copper plates. And these just amazing, amazing sort of 
archive of images that you know engravers would refer back to and sort of develop yeah. new things and almost learn from. Um, yeah. And I th- I think from from memory and what I heard, there was an enormous sort of portion. You know, over half of those plates actually found their way to scrap to try and pay off debt, and it it just pained me because they were like yeah. a, a national treasure. Right. And I, I, you know, I've heard of similar things happening with with different factories. I guess under certain circumstances, there's just a consideration of how do we resolve this financial issue, and things you know pay the, pay the price and become affected in some way. Anyway, that being said, that early career sort of focus on on blue and white. I, I talked about it as a, being a sort of a, a transformation of landscape here, yeah. introduction of that kind of color and palette, and it really began a kind of conversation that was important at that time um, but which gradually changed over time so there was you know a transformation in the way I made images perhaps more recently I'm, I'm now looking at painting much more um, in tandem and in conversation with photography jumping back to Sontag you know mm. where she talks about photography and painting I guess sharing a language but not necessarily competing in that space if you like of fine art I really enjoy the relationship because I, I work from and reference imagery that I photographed from archival images. And yeah, so yeah. for me, there's a, a real osmosis, if you like, between the two. And historically, they I feel that they really support themselves in my work. And conceptually, there's a narrative which unfolds over time. And so images come to life in really what I find to be really exciting ways. And it's something which is I can see stretching ahead for the next few years. And I'm um, I don't know what's coming, but I'm very excited. But how how do you decide what to stop doing as you're out? I mean, is there a decision around that? I mean, I'm just thinking about, you know, your 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 known one of the reasons you're 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 celebrated is this way that you've used blue and white as a way of throwing a new way of seeing landscape and seeing history. And there's a way that your success, one success as an artist, I'm speaking generally, can become um, your, your gilded cage. Because you know, there's one way that you could say, look, the way that I continue to build my legacy, grow my success, is continue to play with this uh, moment of where a blue and white colouring meets uh, uh, archival photograph, meets uh, uh, disruption of iconography of Australia. Um, and you've just spoken about the sense of this evolving sense of your work and how it keeps changing. I'm, I'm curious to know how you find the courage almost to say, this this work feels complete, I'm onto the next thing. Sure. And you've touched on a really, again, a really fundamental question for artists. And in some ways, it's not always a question that artists will face. Yeah. Um, because there, there are practitioners who have a very particular focus and stay with that. And, you know, there will be sort of variations, if you like, variations on a theme. But generally speaking, there's this real engagement. There's a lifelong, almost like focus or passion with that, yeah. which they, it sort of kind of defines their practice or what it is they might bring to exhibition. And you mentioned that that, thing of the gilded cage and yes you can have success but i i do understand that there may be sort of pitfalls to that in the sense that perhaps you feel that you can't break out or you, yeah. you want to change and and you know that shift is too difficult in some ways i had that hesitation when i began to think about things other if you like mm-hmm. than the, the exact form of that early career work and even moving um into different sort of color ranges of blue which doesn't sound thinking about it and talking about it it sounds well come on it's just a color but in in ways you have a real sort of investment in time you've created a brand around that that specific color and that specific expression of it yes and the way your work then gets written about is in reference to and so what i i began to think well actually there are these conversations I want to have with other mediums and in, in other ways. So the core of the work in that sense, the research around it didn't really change, but yeah. what did change was the way that um, in a way that idea grew outwards and it's 
for want of a better way, putting it, its manifestation in form. And so with photography, that gave me a real opportunity to start working with a different medium um, in different ways, but to tone the actual works themselves blue. And so there was a transition into a new medium, but with very recognisable anchors, which I felt conceptually connected all of the things that I've been doing for many, many years. Right. And I felt had a real foundational strength. And so when I actually moved from visible light photography to infrared, right. I found that the infrared was actually much more receptive as a, as a file and as an image to receive in some ways the toning of that blue. And so for me, there was a, a great sort of conversation that opened up then, which was not just in relation to the palette of blue, but also the way yeah, infrared, the invisible to our eyes, could then yes. begin to talk about invisible histories or untold stories. So there was yeah. this really powerful symbology. And, and um, there was a piece that I uh, have mentioned to you, which was Land Story, which is a really uh, a sweeping 13-metre um, nine-panel photographic work. That's right. And, and in some ways that is that is toned blue, but it has a, a really strong connection with that uh, history of photography, but also the, the language around talking symbolically about the idea of, of hidden presence or ancestral presence mm-hmm. and um, stories within the landscape and the rainforest, which can then be sort of teased out using that symbology of invisible light made yeah. visible. And so there are these really interesting sorts of tangents that I began to uncover with photography without, um, in a sense, moving away or abandoning some of those really important core elements of research yeah. that had been very curious and interested about for many, many years. And that extended then into painting. And I was quite interested to explore how the archival photograph could be represented in painting. And part of that, if those, those old wet photographic processes photographers would, would tone their images with sepia and so the paintings I began to work with were quite sepia toned there was a definite if you like look back it's almost like a nostalgic color and it takes you to a different place it's almost historical by default yes. and with those paintings I found there was a different power in that vocabulary and a very subtle one as well but it related it very strongly to those early interests that I had in photography so in some ways there's this so this cyclical sweep through, that I'm finding in my work that sort of yeah. traces some of those really early thinking that moves through a whole range of material development and in a yeah. way keeps moving in ways that are centrally located, if you like, to that core of research, but have their own way of experimenting and unfolding. There's a degree of innovation, if you like, in the, in the way that mm. ideas then express themselves in material form. And for me, that tends to come down to imagery. I love this. I mean, it reminds me of the idea of the palimpsest, you know, this kind of layers of maps where you can sort of see the the history of the other maps through the current map. Um, And it feels like as you describe how your art continues to grow and evolve, it's like located in the same core themes that, that engage you, but there's a new layer and a new a way of seeing it, which also probably feels like a little bit like your art in terms of it invites us back through layers of time and back to a kind of, um, to a, a, a presence that we might not easily see, but you're encouraging us to see through your work. That's a really good observation. And that's precisely what I, I'm trying to bring in. It's I, in some ways to try and encapsulate everything into one image is almost impossible and right. would lead to a very sort of jumbled dialogue <laughs> right. between you know, painting, if you like, and an audience. So in some ways, I see exhibitions, individual works are like words or sentences, exhibitions mm. are like chapters. And so over time, you begin to realise, well, this is kind of like writing a book. And <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's almost like an unfolding draft that gets shown publicly. Yeah. Um, so you have control over, you know, quality and, and sort of what gets included in exhibitions. What is really interesting is that you don't have control over how it's received. Right. And that, that's part of the beauty of, um, you know, showing a work and offering it to audiences is the, the 
I guess, the range of interpretation and reading and what meaning it has for people. I, I, that's part of the power, I think, mm. of art and that it, the artist surrenders control once it leaves the studio in some senses sure. and it's turned over and, and, as I said, offered and people receive it according to their own sensibilities and the way they see the world and um that it's it's a very exciting sort of process sometimes it can be a little nerve-wracking yeah um because in a sense you're offering it's a private offering because you've worked on it alone essentially um you know showing some people getting some feedback um Mm -hmm. which can be really important um but once it starts its journey in the world um off it goes and yeah yeah, it's very it's very interesting. I and that's part of the reasons that I, I enjoy being an artist and, and you can offer the conversations that you hope are really interesting through your work to audiences who then respond in, in unique and special and significant ways. The way you describe the the words, the paragraphs, the, the writing the book makes me think of Dickens and how he wrote his novels on a subscription basis. So he'd put out a chapter. Yes pump it out there, wait for responses, kind of go, okay, this is influencing a little bit what the next the next chapter looks like. And the story unfolds in part in, driven by the artist, but also in dialogue with the audience and how the audience is seeing and responding to the work. That's really, that's almost like the ultimate feedback loop, isn't it? That's right. And, and, and commercially and conceptually driven. That's right, exactly. Yeah, fascinating. That's really quite and, amazing. Danny, this has been such a wonderful conversation. I'm, I'm wondering as a, a final question, um, what needs to be said that hasn't yet been said in this conversation between you and me? Hmm. We've covered a lot of ground. We and have. In some ways, I, going back to you, it's just it's so fantastic the way that you came to my work and, you know, really pleased that we could circle back and, connect and and have this conversation as well yeah perhaps just touching on one last work that came to mind um when you sort of came back with the the observation about writing and literature was a a piece that i made for my most recent exhibition which was called the dialectic gaze and that was in fact picture shelves with a sequence of of crowded hang um photographs from the archive and from my own that were almost assembled like a library of pictures. Right. And I found it really an important piece to make because it, in a sense, brought together a, such a wide range of conversations and dialogue. Mm. And in some ways it, it sort of brought home to me as well how important it is that we look at history, that we kind of try and understand it and that we reassemble, present arrange, compose ideas in a way which is hopefully really interesting and hopefully sparks curiosity. And so in the sense that was there anything left unsaid? Not especially. I, I think we've we've sort of dived, delved into some really important subject areas. And if anything, it's kind of like well, I'm at this point now and I'm sure that you have felt this too <laughs> in your own work where yeah. there's been a certain resolution around creating or making and thinking and, yeah. and publishing or exhibition and um, where the next few years ahead are going to be really quite interesting in terms of how ideas develop, how work then progresses and right. how is it that you can build on some of those really important questions that formed part of that early research, which is kind of ongoing now and yes. increase the depth, um, increase the breadth. And in some ways, um, bring to exhibition a, a new way of looking, a new way of talking about both history, culture, human experience, and what it means then to respond through art. Nine panels, huge. The same blue we remember from A Gay Still Dark, but now the landscape is real. Or at least it seems real. I mean, it's not a tapestry, that's for sure. But the colour and the light make it hmm, unsettling and fleeting. I'm not totally sure if I can trust my eyes and my feet, my sense of direction, even my sense of time. I mean, is this now or is it ancient or is it both? 
This picture, Land Story, reminds me of another one of my favorite Australian artists, Fred Williams. Williams also has a way of capturing something that is both essential about the Australian landscape and is also unreal about it. Williams uses streaks and daubs of colors, hinting at both kind of what's there. You can kind of see trees and bush and the, the shape of the, the bark, but also the complexity and the beauty that I can't normally see when I'm there. <laughs> I know, I know I'm kind of getting swept up in kind of art appreciation here. You're like, this is Michael, what are you talking about? But this is what I most love about the art that I most love. And it, it, it shakes me out of a stupor. It rattles me a little. It makes me realize, even if it's just a little, even if it's just briefly, what I might be missing. And it really, and this is the heart of it, it caused me to be an active participant in my own life and in my own world. You could tell that I <laughs> love this conversation, I know, um, in part because I, I asked fewer questions than I normally do. I think I was swept up in listening to Danny talk about his art and his world and his work and how he thinks about how he shows up to the world. Um, if there are two other interviews that you might be interested that, uh, that hint at something similar, I would suggest Mia Birdsong. That interview, which was relatively recent, was called The Sacred and the Mundane. And that's, you know, certainly those are two words that you might apply to Danny's work. And then the other is Mason Curry. He's actually best known for writing about the, the patterns and the disciplines and the routines of artists, writers, and kind of uh, uh, artists as well. And that interview is called Fragile and Fleeting. Perhaps also two adjectives that can be applied to Danny Mellor's work. If you'd like more of Danny, and I hope you would, um, he's got a website, Danny Mellor. I'll spell it for you because he spells Danny in a slightly unusual way. D-A-N-I-E-M-E-L-L-O-R.com. Of course, there's a link to that in the notes. Um, and Danny's represented by Tolano Galleries, that is in Melbourne, Australia. Thank you for listening. Thank you for giving the show some love, reviews, passing them on. Uh, this is actually the way we grow best is when you listen to an episode and go i should i should send this to whoever <laughs> um you'll actually see there's a link in the notes that is the best link to send people it's a pod link because when you send that to them it actually gives them the choice of whatever platform they want to subscribe in so if you're going to reference the, the episode send them the pod link um i'll just finish by saying you're awesome and you're doing great <laughs>